Cybersecurity is like electricity and water today. You just, you need it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's one of the reasons I chose the cybersecurity industry was because I, I knew that that there was a lot left to do. It was never going to, to be static. It was always going to change. Mm-hmm. And that I felt, on my terms, but I felt it was fairly recession-proof. And so because I wanted to make sure that, that you know, I could continue providing for my family. And I know that a lot of veterans, when they're, they're looking at that transition out, they, they have the same concern. Welcome to the Lojo Show. Thank you for joining us. We are habitually complacent. Mabaloni has a second name. It's M-A-Y-E-R. What? There's always a persistent threat. There is no monopoly on good ideas when it comes to cybersecurity. Welcome back to The Lojo Show. I'm your host, Lovacher Jones. I'm the founder and managing partner at BlackRock Engineering and Technology. I have over 20 years of cybersecurity experience, and I am honored to bring some of that experience to you. Today, we are very excited to have Jeff Worthington on the show. Jeff is a seasoned professional serving as an executive strategist and cyber advisor at CrowdStrike, a leader in cloud-delivered endpoint and workload protection. We will be talking about transitioning former military service members out of the military and into the cybersecurity industry. With a passion for helping others and a wealth of experience, Jeff plays a pivotal role in shaping strategies and advising for companies and veterans as they move through this process. As a service-disabled veteran-owned small business, we here at BlackRock are passionate about serving those who have served us. Whether you're a seasoned listener to the show or this is your first time listening with us, today's episode is one you don't want to miss. If you enjoyed the episode, please give it a share and a shout-out on social media. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on LinkedIn. Let's jump right into it. Welcome back to the Lojo Show. I am just absolutely excited about today's episode. This is awesome being able to have Jeff Worthington from uh, CrowdStrike here. Jeff is also here in the Melbourne, Florida area, so it's always nice to have someone that's local. We're actually in person, face-to-face right now. I get to see how good-looking he is. He gets to see how good-looking I am. You know, it's, it's great. I think he's impressed. <laughs> yeah, I think he's impressed. So, Jeff, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks. I, you know, I just appreciate that I could go somewhere rather than sitting in my office. So when I was given the opportunity of, you can record this at home five miles away or come in, I, I definitely want to come in, yeah. That's awesome. Great to have you here. We don't get a whole lot of visitors to our office usually. <laughs> so... No, so it's great to be here. Like I said, Jeff is with CrowdStrike. He's been there for two years. Jeff is also in the military for years. I'm going to have him give a little bit about more about his background. I think it's unique, basically looking at it from both the folks who have served and then also transitioning here into the civilian life and being definitely another practitioner within cybersecurity and some of the things that his company's doing, as well as really kind of talk about cyber in general too today. So I'm um, looking forward to this discussion, Jeff. Hey, Lojo, so am I. And anything I can do to help you or your listeners certainly would want to do that. In fact, that's one of the things you mentioned, unique. I don't consider my background unique, but mm-hmm. what I do find about my position at CrowdStrike is unique is that I can help organizations with their cyber concerns, mm-hmm. but they also allow me to help veterans and transitioning service members either break into the cybersecurity uh, domain or you know, find a job after the military because it's a, it's a bit nerve-wracking. You know, when, you're, when you're getting out after five years or 25 years, it's, mm-hmm. it's still the same concerns. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about your journey. As you began to make the decision and stuff to, you know, transition, tell us a little bit about, about that journey. Yeah, so I'll spare you the 30-year uh, career <laughs> map of, of where I went, but uh, you know, I spent 30 years, 30 years in the Army. Um, I don't consider myself an Army officer. I consider myself a joint officer. I did most mm-hmm. of my time in joint or special operations units, which I think did give me a different perspective on how to solve problems, you know, seeing it uh, from, from other services, uh, lenses, and viewpoints, which I also think translates really well into what we do in cybersecurity to look through the adversary's eyes or someone else's eyes. Mm-hmm. But so as a career signal officer, uh, so did communications most of my career and uh, bounced back and forth between the East Coast and the East Coast and the East Coast. So <laughs> I, I really didn't leave the East Coast. A lot of my time at Fort Bragg, now known as Fort Liberty, of course, uh, spent some time in the 82nd and then transitioned into the uh, special operations community right about the start of the war in, in Afghanistan and Iraq. But uh, I did serve uh, a tour in the White House, and, and the perspective and the opportunity that that gave me working for both Presidents Bush and Obama 
uh, supporting them with communications, I really got to see a, a portion of the government that I, I wouldn't have had I just remained in uniform and stayed on you know, one side of the, uh, the river. I got to go across the Potomac and actually you know, work in the White House. And that, that was, a, that was a, a lot of fun, a lot of good experiences and, uh, and stories from that. But uh, a couple of my last jobs are really what I think set me up for what I wanted to do now. You know, I've always been the consumer of security or the consumer of IT. Sure, I, I provided services as a, as a signal officer, as a communications officer, but, but I, I consumed what, what the Army and what the DOD gave me. And, you, and you've probably seen the, the things on LinkedIn, the you know, uh, fix my computer or you know, the, the, the memes about why their computers are, are slow or, or issues with them. And I struggled with that because I, I had to provide what the, what the, the DOD provided and, and we did, you know, everyone did their best. But, but when I got to JSOC, when I got to Joint Special Operations Command, I could actually uh, determine what we did. And I felt there were some different ways of, of doing business, and especially when it came to securing the, uh, the environment. So I, I used to tell my bosses beforehand that uh, you know, I'm, the, I'm your service delivery. I, I will provide you the services. When I got to JSOC, I told the commanding general there that, uh, sure, we're going to deliver services to you, but, but I need to make sure that you can use those services and you trust in those services. And mm -hmm. so uh, we really started to push heavy on cybersecurity because we, I, I knew that the threat was out there and, and I knew that you know, we were a lucrative target you know, globally across the, across the world. So, so I focused on it and I, I tried to learn as much as I could. I made a lot of mistakes in my mm -hmm. two years at JSOC in, in some of the solutions that we, that we provided and also some of the programs that we started that I just couldn't get going. Zero Trust, and I talked about Zero Trust quite a bit. I failed at Zero Trust because I didn't understand Zero Trust. And so I now know that education is a key part of solving your problem because you can't just say, get us to the cloud or get us to Zero Trust and know that you're going to get there the right way or safely because you've just given a broad kind of hand, hand wave of what to do. Does that make sense? That makes yeah. complete sense. Yeah. One of the things about uh, cybersecurity and, and looking at it is... I look at it as like a profession, like uh, being a lawyer or being a doctor, right? It, it is a practice. It's a practice. While we want to put things in their boxes and say, that's perfect, but, but it's constantly have trade-offs within this field, right? We could have a great solution and stuff that's out there, works great, prevents a lot of things from happening, but can, you know, at its best, prevent you from being productive, prevent you from being operational, <laughs> prevent you from achieving whatever mission goal and stuff that's there because it's either too slow or you have a brick as a laptop or you're not able to get to the services you need in a trustworthy amount of time, right? That's there. And so it is, it's a practice. You're pulling one lever here and something else is falling over here. You try to make as many educated decisions as you can, but likelihood there is something out there that you might not have accounted for that you have to continue to account for. So it is, it's a practice. Yeah, you know, one thing you said there really triggered a, a memory of mine. And so often the the security guys, the either IT or even the security department inside IT, they're thought of as the adversary. You know, they're, they're the problem. They're preventing me from doing my job as an as an operator, whatever your whatever your business may be. And uh, I, I used to say you know, we, we need to be thought of as enabling them. So cybersecurity really has to enable your business. And I think if if the IT departments, if the CIOs and the CISOs try and tell the story of we are empowering you, we are enabling you, then maybe that breaks down that gap between the, the business units and, and cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. Being able to, like you said, in, in have that enabling capability. You have something that you want to accomplish, but you've got to accomplish it securely, right? So I'm going to enable you to do that, right? We're going to go through some tests. <laughs> we're going to go through some trials of this. And uh, some are going to be successful, some are not. But ultimately, if it's part of the business goal or if it's part of the mission goal and stuff in this case, we're going to walk down that line together. And uh, I think the industry and the folks in there are starting to really understand that more because now you're seeing cyber align a lot differently than it used to be. It used to be, hey, cybersecurity and security when it comes to IT and stuff, that's going to align under the CIO of the organization there and have a CISO or someone reporting to them as a director. Now you're seeing that alignment a lot different. You have that alignment now attached to things like acquisition, right, as far as through the acquisition process and stuff too. Security is entailed within that and Therefore, requirements and stuff are being derived in that way, too. And it's not just being overseen by a CIO or, or someone of that nature. It's now being looked at as, hey, we've got to get this operational now. We need to get this in acquisition. Here are the requirements for it. This is what the operators are needing as well from there. So I think we're starting to step over that curve. We're not there yet, but 
they're starting to step over that. Yeah, I think I think we've seen that. You know, the, mm -hmm. the Securities Exchange Commission yep. is now getting some more, I don't want to say power, but mm -hmm. more involved yeah. when it comes to to organizations and if they've had a breach or what they're doing to prevent a breach. Mm -hmm. uh, I I think more is going to come out about MGM and Caesars here that, this past week. But but what I've read already showed that that maybe they didn't have the right people on the board. That, that had that IT and cybersecurity experience. Mm -hmm. And I'm not gonna say they just did a check block, hey, we're, we're, we're in compliance, we're good. Mm -hmm. but, but what I know about it right now is that I don't know that they place the emphasis on it at the board level. And I think we're going to see a lot more at the board level. Mm -hmm. You know, those, those boards becoming very interested mm -hmm. uh, in, in cybersecurity, especially we've seen now with cyber insurance. The, mm -hmm. uh, your insurance agencies are starting to demand a lot more when it comes to even if they'll cover you or not, mm -hmm. uh, just what you're doing and what your organizational structure is doing to support it. And the insurers really took us for a run about three years ago when they began to say, that's not covered, that's exempted. And then they began to really ingrain certain practices or certain standards that they wanted you to meet. I don't think I've ever done an audit where an organization was completely perfect in how they do things. And the organizations that were close to perfect have been organizations in the past that have been uh, compromised in some way, shape, or form. But the latest legislation, the latest practices and stuff that are coming in there, you mentioned the SEC and then also even the, the disclosure rules and stuff too mm -hmm. now uh, that organizations have from that. Yeah, they're going to strive to to get to where they need to as a standard. But the end, boards and stuff have to make the decision of, do we spend money and are we spending money in a way that we're lowering our risk and accounting for both our business, safety of our business, our customers, our clients, and also uh, avoiding some of the fines. Yeah, yeah. You brought up a point about uh, the fines. So I'm doing some research right now for K-12 uh, education for some school districts. And uh, what we've seen and some research I've seen by the GAO, the um, Government Accountability Office, is that a school breach, K-12 breach, costs between $50,000 and a million dollars. The one in Baltimore, what, about a year and a half ago or two years ago, they're thinking it's around the six to nine million dollar range is what it's cost the school. And, and there are certainly unseen costs when mm -hmm. it comes to the constituency, the, the students, the administrators, the, the parents. But but it is, it's, it's that risk, do I want to risk paying 50000 to a million dollars, or do I pay 15000 or 20000 whatever it may mm -hmm. be for that cybersecurity? When you talk about kind of the residual risk or when you begin to offset within an organization in terms of, hey, our company needs to make this amount of money this year. We need to be able to get this to market faster there. What we found when we do things like board presentations and stuff from on that, there wasn't a whole lot of folks on those boards that were really cyber literate. Now we're starting to see a lot more of these companies go out and get board members that do have some sort of cyber background yeah. or some exposure within that. So that's pretty neat to see that first step, I guess I say it in that yeah, way. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to, to really being able to get ahead of this. I mean, at the end of the day, we're, you know, we're an enterprising country <laughs> from that, and our corporations and stuff love to be able to operate independently, even in you know, these situations here, but uh, I think as far as curbing that and being, being, able, being able to address that more forward is uh, definitely the uh, the want from a board and from our SEC and our mm -hmm. country's, you know, benefit as well. So I like that. When we look at some of the things that you're doing now as far as a CrowdStrike, we talked about a couple of areas there. How is CrowdStrike helping these organizations begin to address these problems, let's say operationally? Yeah strategically, and then what they're doing tactically and how they use some of the solutions and stuff that are there. So I, I will tell you one thing, and we didn't discuss it yet, but what do I do at CrowdStrike? Yeah, yeah. And so you're coming out of the government, I, I wondered you know, what, what I wanted to do. And someone asked me, what are you passionate about? What is it you like to do? And, mm -hmm. and I didn't know. I really didn't. And I had to go book back and look at my career and see where I gained the most satisfaction, what really gave me strength, what gave me energy. And it turns out it was helping others. It was actually going to Fort Gordon and speaking to the captains, the lieutenants, the warrant officers about mistakes I had made over my career or my advice or listening to them because I believed I made better decisions if I listened to those coming up in the ranks on, on what they were thinking and, uh, and what they wanted to do, what their desires were. And so, so coming, out of, coming out of the Army and moving to CrowdStrike, I found an organization that allows me to do that. And so you, know, you ask, what does CrowdStrike do to, to help organizations strategically I would tell you they, they hire people like me, a former CIO from the government. The team I'm on, there's seven of us right now, former CISOs and CIOs from higher education, healthcare, state and local government. And so what we do 
is we're able to go out and speak to boards, speak to companies. We will speak at conferences and events on not only what CrowdStrike is seeing, but on what we are seeing across the globe. So what is, what is that best company doing? Or what, what is the company not doing that they should do? And we can take that information and education and, and bring it to others. So I think what are they doing strategically? They're, they're trying to get the message out on what the problem is and how you can solve your problems. You, you could choose a CrowdStrike solution or not. You know, certainly we'd prefer you cho choose a CrowdStrike solution, but here's what we're seeing that you can use to defend yourself better. And uh, I, I really applaud the company for, for doing that. Now, you know, I guess tactically or more operationally, you know, what is CrowdStrike doing? So you know, people talk AI now quite a bit, and it's like AI was discovered six, eight months ago. That, that's absolutely not the case. <laughs> you know, CrowdStrike was founded in 2011, and it was it was started with AI in mind. And so, so George Kurtz, one of our, our co-founders and the current CEO, believed there was a better way of securing and protecting the endpoints. Initially, it was the endpoints. And so we, we used AI, so we used all the telemetry coming off of, off of endpoints, whether it be your mobile device or your server or your cloud workload, whatever that may be, to, to use the power of an algorithm to, to help make people or help uh, people make decisions faster and better decisions faster. And so, so we've been using this new technology for the past 11, 12 years now to really speed up your ability to understand what's going on. So, so what are we doing you know, at that level? We're, we're helping companies get to a decision faster rather than, you know, let's say, right of the boom. So after the explosion happens, you know, you, you know the front door is open. We really try and help you get to where the door hasn't been opened yet, but you know something is going on so let's stop it and let's you know try and fix it. We, we have a, a, a metric in the company. It's called the 11060 rule. I don't know if you've heard of it before, but it's it's detect an adversary or a threat in under a minute, contain in under 10, investigate in under 10, and completely remediate it in 60 minutes. We believe that if you go by 11060, then then your organizations are fairly well protected. The adversary is getting faster, and we as defenders, whatever company you you belong to, ought to get faster as well. But, but you have to have a mark on the wall to know if you're getting you know, better or worse from day to day. You, know, you have to have a yardstick, right? And from my world, thinking for a world of EDR and SDR, those are more tag words to a lot of things you just said and stuff. And so, but I'll right. tell you what, that was very clear as far as on how you explain that. So you know, to our listeners out there, one of the things that we look at in, in cyber is really how do we simplify the problem that's in front of us, right? So you're establishing marks, standards for your own organization, right? In some cases, it's you could say that, hey, this product will work here or this will work here, but really you got to have a baseline for your organization. So the collection of information, how that information is parsed, analyzed and stuff from there, and eventually how you begin to infer from that information mm -hmm. is some of the things that's definitely relevant in this age right now, especially when we talk about machine learning and then also the adversaries and stuff too that we have now that are becoming more proficient in automation, as far they as are. on that, it's very hard to do things manually when you something when you have something that's automated that's going at you, right? Or that's automated that's actually uh, either attacking or trying to disrupt what it is that you do. When you see when you saw CrowdStrike and you began to to work with them, what was one of the kind of the the, the aha moments for you, though, where you said, you know what, this will probably be, you know, a great place. This is how we look at our customers. This is how we look at our our world, and then in particular to the boards and different listenerships and stuff too that you guys are working with. Yeah, not every board's the same. There are different people from that, but you know, from you and your background stuff from there, how did you make that decision you yeah. know, from yourself? So, so in in the military, when you when you are preparing to to conduct an operation, you you know what you are. You know your friendly forces. You mm -hmm. know what you have, what organizations they're from, and what their capabilities are. And then someone comes in and tells you. Here's who you're going against. Here's here's the adversary. Here 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 are their motives. Here are their TTPs. Here's how you defend against that. And so at CrowdStrike, you know, we we track a little over 200 to 215-ish adversaries. So we can we can attribute an attack to a specific adversary in a specific sector or vertical. And so you know one of the things that I really loved about the company was that they were adversary focused. It's mm -hmm. it's an adverse. You have to take an adversary's perspective, an adversary's mindset because. If there's, let's say, 215 known actors that CrowdStrike tracks out there, it, you cannot have enough resources, whether it's time or people or equipment, to defend against all 215 of those. Mm -hmm. And so 
One of those aha moments I had with CrowdStrike was that they, they care enough to help you understand not only yourself, you know, what, what do you have, what your assets are, but also who's going against you and what they're doing. And then that really helps you, you talk about a baseline, that would help me as a CISO or a CIO baseline what defenses I need. You know, right now, depends on who you talk to, an organization has between 45 and 65 disparate tools, in air quotes I'm doing, you know, uh, yeah. on the network. And most of those don't talk to each other. Another thing that I loved about CrowdStrike, and I will tell you, I didn't know this before I came to the company. I would have told you the company was a, a threat intelligence company because that's really what they did in the Department of Defense. That was my only exposure to them. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that they had services and that they, they protected your endpoints, whether it's cloud, on-prem, you know, or, or mobile. And so when I realized that we not only took the adversary's motives, intent, and TTPs, and then opened that up across a, an ecosystem of cybersecurity. So it, for most of our solutions, they have open APIs to, to other vendors because we, we do the endpoint. We, we, we will work on your endpoint and that's where we wanna focus. We, we don't get ourselves diluted with a lot of different things. Another company may do the network, but we interact and, and we are integrated with the network vendor. We do a lot with Zscaler for mm -hmm. zero trust. We will help feed their overall zero trust score. Wouldn't you hate it if you had to look at CrowdStrike for what's going on in my endpoint and then look at someone else for what's going on with your zero trust and knowing that all that information from the endpoint is never making it into your real risk that you have when it comes to zero trust. And so the two things that you know I loved about the company when I joined were the adversary focus so that you know who's going against you to help you as a CISO or CIO focus your resources and then our ability to integrate very widely across an ecosystem of partners rather than being yet another tool that you have to field. Yeah, that 66 tool you have to field. We used to always ask as a, as a consultant, you come in and you say, you know, what's your return on investment from all the tools that you have out there, right? You got organizations that have, let's say, a network access control, right, that's out there. They may be using Cisco ICE over here and maybe using ForeScout over here, right? And then you got your organizations that have manufacturing and stuff there, and they may have another tool that's there for OT you know, right. products and stuff from there. When he's talking about endpoints, guys, that's that is that's where a lot of times you have the information and data that you're using to process and store information, whether that's like you said a cloud server or it's a desktop, a laptop, or <laughs> you know even a, a cell phone or so that's uh, that's there that's uh, being used for your organization, and you're getting closer and closer to where things are being processed, but you're also capturing things like well, what's going on for the behaviors, what's normal, what's not normal from there. Now. One of the things I always say when I kind of transition into my career and stuff here is that it made you kind of paranoid initially <laughs> as far as on that. But I saw the applicability, too, to my family, to my daily activities and stuff from there. But then also, you know, from a company standpoint and how we function. And then as working as a DOD contractor and stuff, too, you notice both in whether it be from a regulation standpoint or even how people operate, that security over the last five years has dramatically increased, especially as we started saying, you know what, we want to do some work from home. What does that expose us to, right? How have you guys been really, what's been the approach from you, CrowdStrike and stuff, as far as really meeting that demand now, as far as on where endpoints exist, yeah. how they work and stuff too now, not necessarily just on a corporate network, but also across from everybody's home network too. I want to cover something real fast about data. And uh, I think it's a really important point because that's where the money is. It's with the data. Yeah. And, and at CrowdStrike, we, we track three different, I'll call them buckets of mm -hmm. adversaries. It's your nation state actors, you know, the China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, things like that. And then your e-criminals and then the hacktivists or the, the terrorist organizations and the e-criminals, which make up the large bulk of the adversaries that are going against normal companies and, and individuals. They want your data. Yeah, they, they don't care about you. They don't really care about your network. They care about what's residing on, on your device. They care about what you're doing on your computer or on your mobile phone because that they can then sell. And that's something we've seen a huge increase in, the sale of information on the dark and deep web. I know mine was available and yours maybe too from the OPM breach Very in 2014. So. <laughs> yeah, 2014, there. 2015. So it's it's out there, right? Yep. And, and it's, we could certainly get into a discussion on why I think AI married up with all that OPM data could really cause a problem. Mm -hmm. But uh, so when you talk CrowdStrike and the and the, that distributed workforce, we'll call it now, you know, when when COVID hit and we were sending everyone, I say home, I was at JSOC, so I was the CIO for JSOC. And that was one of the, the boss, 
Boss's first words to me was, you know, get everyone off the compound. I, w- I don't want anyone here. I want everyone at home. And that's difficult. You know, we talk classified workspaces, and mm-hmm. now you're distributing that. Well, you know, I had classified information that we had to, to still secure, but yet not secure on our compound where we were. You know, a company's information is no less valuable to them, and they were working at home as well. Our kids were doing stuff at home. So at CrowdStrike, when I first joined, I remember our splash page said, work from anywhere. That was the, the, the page up there. Mm. And uh, CrowdStrike was a remote company at first. We've never had, we have offices, but we've never had a requirement for everyone to work in the office. So when the company started, they knew that we were going to have workers you know, at, a, at an Airbnb in the Poconos like I was for a little while, for about 10 days, mm-hmm. or you know, sitting on the beach or at home. And so the, the company's culture from the very beginning understood that you had to secure that endpoint. That's why it's so important about the endpoint. You know, the old castle and moat, just put up firewalls. Mm-hmm. Firewalls don't work anymore. But you should have firewalls, but they don't provide the same protection they did when we all worked in the same office. And so that's why securing that endpoint and understanding what is going on on that endpoint and then how that endpoint and you, your identity, interact with the greater company network, it's so important to have all that information that's going on there because that's where the risk is. And the adversary knows that the risk is no longer behind that castle and moat. That it's it's sitting at a you know at a, at a beach property here in Melbourne, Florida, or something. I think about just about everything we do. I mean, even from our end, you know, we're we're, we're we are very mobile as a as a company. So most of the, everything we do is cloud. Most of everything we do is on our cell phone, right? Tablet and you know even you know Google Books now. <laughs> so as we look at that, I mean, look at how that's evolved. And you had mentioned zero trust earlier and stuff. There, that is a that's a huge push right now as far as for being able to establish your trust security and stuff and being able to use that architecture, that framework, those rule sets and stuff too, to do that. Tell us a little bit more about that in terms of how both our military views zero trust, yeah. but also how that's so applicable now in terms of both complying with what we're doing for disclosure, applying with what we're doing for compliance. So this is my failure. When I, when I was in JSOC, I heard this zero trust thing and I, I was a, a victim like many uh, senior leaders are. You, you hear a buzzword or you hear something or you're briefed on something and that's about mm-hmm. all you know of it. And so I said, year of zero trust. This is what we're going to do is zero trust. I really didn't understand what it was. And so I said, zero trust. And it is a huge elephant, zero mm-hmm. trust is. So, so I, di- I didn't know enough to really make informed decisions on our, on our resources. And I, I completely failed because I gave them too much of a project to do. And so zero trust really is about eliminating the blast radius of, of a bad thing that happens at a specific part in your network. And it could be on your HR systems or on your payroll system or on your other business systems that you have, maybe your identity, access and control. And so I read a book by George Finney called Project Zero Trust. Don't know if you're familiar with it. Familiar. You're smirking, yeah. like, you're smirking <laughs> like you are. Yet so, so ironically, I was going to speak at a, at a summit about zero trust. And I, and I bought his book and I'm reading feverishly through his book because I, I learned from things like the Phoenix Project by Gene Kim, a friend of mine. And it, it tells a story, Project Zero Trust tells a story of one individual's journey, understanding what zero trust is, putting a project together and then executing it. And then since then, I've talked to, and I forget his first name, but Kinderweg, the basically the father of, of zero trust, tell it the best when he shows picture of a motorcade, a presidential motorcade. I don't know if you've seen this, this image that he's shown, but it's, it's, it's incredible. And it shows about, you know, you're protecting the, the presidents in the, the vehicle, and that's what you're protecting. You know, that data, that's yeah. what you're protecting. And then you draw a circle around that data, and then you have different controls to protect that circle. And then something else may have another circle. And so what I learned with Zero Trust, what we're doing with the, with the, the DOD is we have mapped to the DOD's uh, seven pillars of zero trust. Mm-hmm. And NIST, uh, NIST has their own uh, pillars of zero trust a- a- as well as CISA. And so we try and map to those controls to what, what is important to that. And CrowdStrike cannot do it all. We absolutely cannot. There are, I think, 91 basic controls and 152 advanced controls in the DOD. And, and we, don't, we don't do all of them. But a, a partnership between organizations certainly do them very well and very quickly. And Okta, Zscaler, AWS, and us, CrowdStrike, have a partnership to do some zero trust work with the DOD. And we believe we can get them to DOD much faster. We, we, we can't take until 2027 to, to get there. But, but what organizations can do soon, and what they ought to do soon, 
is identify their business systems that they have and then develop a project that much like in, in, in George Finney's book, identify a project and understand those business units and focus on some some ones that are less critical, not your crown jewels. Everyone wants to rush to the crown jewels. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's not the first place you should start. And so, so you practice with those that are not as critical and then work your way up to where, you, you know, whatever your business is, your critical function, now that you've worked up your plan and, and everyone has a good muscle memory on how to implement zero trust, you don't have to implement the BlackRock engineering. You know, zero trust for BlackRock engineering. You can divide it into small, piece, small pieces and projects. Mm -hmm. And just by starting with one, you have made yourself better than you were before. That's a great point. One of the things that I remember when we kind of really started having these conversations about zero trust, I mean, we, I think we probably started having these conversations in 2013, really, as far as when the conversation really started to come out a little bit more as far as, oh, hey, zero trust. But then it was kind of like the word cloud, where it was like, okay, something up there, something around there. But one of the things that I always tried to say to my clients was, it's not monolithic. BlackRock Engineering's zero trust capabilities is much different than a Raytheon Technologies. I don't have any infrastructure. My infrastructure is all cloud-based. Everything we do is really you know, software-defined networking, right? So I don't have a real infrastructure in that area. But again, my biggest elements as far as for vulnerability and stuff too from that, or biggest threat is our mobile devices. And so, so when we talk about our assets, obtaining access to our crown jewels, our data or customer data or whichever from that, that's where we have to look at how we build our zero trust. Doesn't mean we go and try to build a moat again, <laughs> a castle right. that's there. It's again, taking and orchestrating the services, technology, processes we have and stuff in a way that allows us to hit the seven pillars of zero trust as we see it from a DOD standpoint. Yeah, and I yeah. think you really have to make a plan. You have mm -hmm. to understand your problem, develop your plan and then execute. Uh, what, what I did at one point in an organization, we rushed to the cloud. Get mm -hmm. to the cloud, get to the cloud, guys. And we ran to the cloud, and we probably ran in the middle of the night with scissors, and uh, we left some things open. Organizations do that every day. And so I think with zero, tr but, but some of the most successful things that, that I have been a part of is when I gave the team time to you know, understand what the problem really is, mm -hmm. and then develop the plan and the solution to, to fix that problem, and then execute it, not rush to get it done as quickly as possible. And so I think if organizations take a, a planned and measured approach, whether it's to the cloud or into zero trust, I think they'll be more successful than just rushing there as quickly as possible. Did you find as you went through that journey that things like funding those types of programs is to be able to investigate zero trust and then also look at it from your organization and then come up with, hey, this is what we think or how we should probably approach this from there? How did that go as far as to know what I need funding? Because I think both you and the DOD at that time and also even CISOs and directors of security and cloud security within organizations still kind of get hit with the, how do we say that this is how much we need in order to address yeah. this? And here is the actual use cases we're trying to, you know, trying to target here. How did you go about that? Yeah, process? it's funny. I'm really glad you mentioned use cases. And I struggled with that term years ago when someone kept pounding me with, give me a use case, give me a use case. But a use case is so important as long as it's not the IT director's use case. Mm -hmm. It's one of the business units use case, or in my case, one of the other commanders uh, who could then advocate on my behalf for, for funding. This was for funding um, in, in this instance. But so what I saw, and, and something that CrowdStrike does, and, and I have told the company, why didn't you come and tell me this when I was on active duty? But we do a, a business value analysis. Mm -hmm. And you know, I had to do a lot of work with the, the service members that I had to try and develop our story on why we needed funding for something. And, and we just, we didn't have the time and, and the resources to do that. And so an organization like a CrowdStrike that comes in after they understand what your, your network is and what your concerns are, they, they will provide you, we will provide you a, a business value analysis. And when I looked at the first one, I said, that is the slide that I needed mm -hmm. to take to my boss to advocate for funding. Because it says, based on either industry best practices or current labor rates, that the time, the real data, the time that we're spending to fix a problem, we can put a dollar value to that. And I could explain that what it would cost me not to do it, or what I would save if I 
if I consolidate some things mm. rather than having these disparate tools. And so, so what I used was the, the information that I got from, from some really good people that did a lot of research, but I could have really used an organization that understood me from a third-party perspective and could help me make that case to the, to the board, you know, to the, to the boss. How we present information is one of the, is, I'd say it's, a, again, another practice, right? When we're working with different stakeholders, whether that those stakeholders be, you know, whether they be military or whether they be civilian, whether it be a board of, let's say, you know, a school board or so too here, how we present this information in terms of security does have, there are a number of practices and ways to do it. You were talking about a slide, right? <laughs> how we present that, being able to say, look, this is what the value add is, here's what the cost is. Really, that's what a lot of folks drive to on that. But we have so much more of the story behind us of kind of, we know that our organization is in this level of vulnerabilities. We have this level of threats to us each and every day. Here are the scenarios there, and here's how, uh, here's about how it affects us from an operational standpoint. Now, when we walk down that line and we start saying, who can help me in the industry to be able to communicate this, that's been a key that I've been working on for years as far as within both my work here uh, at, at BlackRock, but and also at, uh, uh, at my other companies that I work with there. And that was probably one of the biggest uh, areas that I had to really focus on as a leader in this area and as a leader as far as in the organization is how I communicated to my stakeholders yeah. and saying that this is what's important. What were some of the kind of the three kind of takeaways that you found when you had to present this? You had Child Strike actually helping, you know, being able to kind of produce that type of information. And then how have you used that in your current practice right yeah. now as far as that cross right? It's ironic. I was smiling, and you know, your listeners can't, can't see this, but I was smiling mm -hmm. when you were saying that because I'm actually working on a second version of that K-12 briefing because the, the IT directors, or in some, some instances with small school district, the mm -hmm. IT director is also a teacher. And, and they, don't have the, they don't have the information. They don't have the time to put something together. I, I want to cover one thing first, though, and mm -hmm. I... So I rarely, first of all, I never answered an email from a vendor mm -hmm. and I took my recommendations from peers. And so, so what do, what do, what is, what do we like? We like when peers, and what's CrowdStrike like? We like it when peers talk about us mm -hmm. rather than when CrowdStrike, because of course I'm going to advocate for CrowdStrike, but when a peer advocates for an organization, that, that, that tells a lot that they will listen to peers. I would have listened to a fellow J6, a fellow CIO in government before I'd listened to a vendor from XYZ company. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about how we, you know, the three things or how I would present my story to, to organizations, actually I, I have three slides that, that, that we've put together. And, and one is you have to educate on, on the threat. And so you give them the headlines. And so I will, I'll provide the headlines. And the one I did for a school district in Georgia, actually, it, it shows from the past six, eight months, the the cyber attacks that have that have occurred in in schools across across the country, and and the rise of them, and and then I explain the problem. You know why why are K twelve schools so so targeted, or, or or why is healthcare so targeted? So you explain the problem to them so they understand it better. Because hey, the the hospital administrators are great administrators, but they may not be a cybersecurity expert. They may not have time to do this research, and so. What, what does someone like me do for them? I'll do the research for them to, to provide them with the information they need to make a really informed decision. And then what I'd like to do is tell them or explain you know, where we are. And so after we get an understanding of what their environment is, we will say, you know, we have 2,000 endpoints. But, you know, I think in this one case, it's 2,500 students plus faculty, administrators, staff, and parents. You know, we, we have a eight, 8 a.m. to 3 a.m. coverage, you know, you know the, the current situation, right? Just like in the military, what is my current situation? And then what I like to tell them is, here's where you really need to be. So I've shown you the, 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 the so what. I've shown you the headlines and, and what's going on, and I've explained why you're such a target and, and what they're looking for. And because in the case of K-12, you know, we want to we graduate uh, well-educated, prepared, you know, mature individuals to contribute to society, whatever their mission statement is. And so you have to explain to them what, where they are, but where they really need to be. Mm -hmm. And then here's what we can do to help you get there. So that's, that's kind of the, like the, the three things, you know, what, you know, the, the, the problem that's out there, mm -hmm. why, you are, why your organization is targeted by that problem, 
and then you know what you can do to, to, to get to a point where you're more defended, if that makes sense to you, Lojo. That makes sense to me. Your concentration in that area, as far as in K through 12, I think it's a, a pretty unique, because like you said, you have this mixture of information in that, in, in that area where we've got privacy, cybersecurity rules, right? Cities, state regulations and stuff too that are also pulled down. But the volume of information that's going around in that area, in that arena, can you tell us a little bit more about that? How, how you guys have been really approaching that. Program. So, you know, and not only, especially with with the SaaS solutions that are out there, you know, software as a service solutions, and the remote culture that, that's going on now, that that has really opened up school districts to vulnerabilities and risks that they may not have had before when everything was was right there in their school district. And many school districts, most we'll call it most school districts, are not resourced to, to fight the problem. Sure, a, a large one is, although LA Unified School District, I think that's one or two, you know, for the largest school district in the country that was hit a year and a half ago or so. Yeah. Baltimore School District was hit. Minneapolis, Minnesota School District was hit. These are large ones, but there are plenty of small ones out there that, that just are, are not, not prepared right now, you know. And the, the treasure trove of data that is out there at a school district is is incredible. So I, I'll talk Georgia again, just because I'm working this one for Georgia. Georgia has 1.8 million students in the K-12 education system. That is 1.8 million identities that that are are out there, and that's not only just their identity; it's their school records, it's their health records, it's um, yeah, the payroll uh, records. In fact, I forget the school district right now but a school district lost a few million dollars because of a business email compromise where they masqueraded as the chief operating officer for the school district and paid 180 days ago, or the average is about 240 days, they just sit there on your network. And so if you don't have someone actively watching your network, then it's gonna be very difficult for you to, to thwart the attack because they're gonna, they're gonna look like every, every user that, that's on your network there. And so what, what does CrowdStrike do? You know, we will offer a managed service, whether it's, it's called Overwatch, but it, uh, it provides that overwatch of your, of your organization when you really can't. Um, and then we also offer what's called Complete. You know, we, we will be your, your SOC, your security operations center for you. Again, many companies do this, and I think it's pretty critical that organizations do provide managed services for not only your K-12, I know we're speaking about this, but mm -hmm. how many small mom and pop businesses are up and down this road right here that's out you know out yeah. here to our to our east that they don't have the ability to to sit there and monitor it so I, I do think that companies that offer a solution that where you can help the you know the, the the business owner or the the IT director to extend their coverage when they can't be there I, I think that's extremely important you see a lot of small companies really struggle with this trying to keep up with this especially small companies that have had to establish. And when I'm talking small, I'm saying a company that's anywhere from, let's say, $200,000 a year <laughs> that, they're, yeah. that they're pulling in to, you know, 30 and $40 million a year. Because even though it sounds really great, 20 to $40 million a year, remember, that's still a small business at the end of the day. It's still a small business because you look at margin, you look at the resources they have available to them to help in this area, and you go... Well, how are you going to do that if you're a small business that's, say, located in three different areas, three different geographically different areas, trying to run an IT program to keep your company connected and to operate? That's still a lot. To yeah. ask them to do all their own security operations and stuff from that, while it can be done, there are ways to, to look at how you augment it. That's not your primary business. It's something that can be definitely augmented with services like you were just talking about. And we saw that. We saw a, a great, huge increase in stuff, too, in the use of MSSPs and MSPs and stuff out there. But trying to discern which one's giving you the value that you need versus one that's not giving you the value that you need, that's the complicated part. Because they can set this up and just sit there and say, yeah, we're monitoring. Uh, oh, so, and, and that's you're, you're exactly right. In fact, I spoke to a number of CISOs in Detroit, and uh, one of the things that they, they brought up was you need to understand the the SLA. What is that service level agreement I have? Mm -hmm. You know, with that company, you know, that, that fine print that that few of us read yep. when we sign an agreement. And because that one, your data may not be yours anymore. Go back to the data. You may mm -hmm. give up all your data rights, and you didn't know it. Or or two, they may not have to do anything. Yep. They're, you're paying them money, and they're really not doing anything to make you more secure. 
So it, it is important to do some due diligence. See, we, we do it when we buy a car. We do it when we buy a house. We, we ought to do it when we buy cybersecurity services. Yep. And, you know, a key to that, too, is, is what we talk about, the playbook, right? What we say a lot in the industry is, like, what is your playbook? If this is happening, what do you do next? What's the next thing you do, right? Some of that is manual as far as in your playbook. If there are things that you can do that are more automated, great. Being able to have that is, is now crucial and critical while it's there. Again, it comes down to, is this something that you need to specialize in as a company that's, say, selling wickets, right? Or is it something that you have to make a decision of, you know what, there's certain things that we don't do well, it's not really natural to us. Here's where we need an MSP, right, yeah. a managed service provider. And being able to know what to look for in a managed service provider is really key to that, you know, for those organizations. So okay. being able to have the guidance yeah. you guys doing risk assessments too for that is, I think, useful. That's another thing you brought you, risk assessments. Many, many organizations, CrowdStrike included, will do risk, free risk assessments for you. We, we will come in and other organizations will come in and, and just do it, S- certainly. You know, it would be great if you bought a product at the end. But just having that information of, here's where my blind spots are, mm-hmm. you have more than you had before. Yep. Yep. And, you know, that's a key. And darn, darn shame you guys are doing that for free. I'm going to have to find another industry for myself. I want to bring something before we, we miss this. I know some of your audience is in the, de, in the defense industrial base or mm-hmm. in, in the defense industry. Yep. And uh, so... I'm going to get it wrong. If it's 200,000, it's 300,000. I, I forget it. Regardless, it's a huge number mm-hmm. of companies that are in the defense industrial base. Yeah, right? 300,000. 300,000. And, you know, probably 90%, 95% are small businesses, mm-hmm. small, medium businesses. Six guys in a garage, you know, with a cat making a widget. And so you only have to look back to some breaches in the recent history. You know, uh, the, of course, there's, there's the, the, the big one with, and I'm drawing a blank now. It was our network monitoring tool. And I forget. Oh, you're talking about the, your sun, not sun, my goodness. Yeah, it was called, it was called sun, sunburst or whatever, but yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, case, yeah. Third-party vulnerabilities. Yeah. That's what I'm getting at is third-party vulnerabilities. That is a, they're exploiting, the adversary is exploiting third-party vulnerabilities. I, mm-hmm. I will tell you, we watch- Solar winds. Solar winds, there you go. <laughs> Thank you. And I'm an idiot for not remembering that, so let's edit that part out. But uh, so, so we have watched attacks in real time of actors who have exploited third-party vulnerabilities to get to the, to the real target. And, and so you know, six guys in a garage making a canooter valve or a widget you know, for the defense space or for the defense industry, that's a lucrative target because if I can hit the weakest and softest target and then just put myself in the, if, if you're doing a software, you know, if you're doing software as a service or if you're doing something that is in software, put myself in code, or if I can somehow interject a flaw, you know, very far upstream mm-hmm. to where it gets into where I want to go, well, that, that's why the, the, the DIB, the defense industrial base, really needs, I think, some some effort and focus. And I know the DOD, we've talked to uh, Mr. McEwen and Honorable Sherman, the DOD CIO, mm-hmm. uh, and they're also very concerned with the defense industrial base. And so CrowdStrike and a number of other companies uh, are working to see what they can do to, to really help the, the DIB companies that are out there. One of the things that you find in the DIB, right, is, again, most of our industries and most of the folks that serve the DIB or most companies that serve it, it's low margin work. Mm-hmm. It's not high margin work. So economically, whenever you're facing, let's say, security and say, you know what, I just want to do what I need to do, you'll look for cheap options, right? Open source has been one of the things that's been there. I love open source and stuff from it. However, one of the things that you need to be able to do is be able to trace that supply chain as well, right? Whether that be in code, whether that be in, you know, let's say in the physical world, as far as on where firmware and physical, you know, stuff is manufactured, how that's going as far as four levels down in the supply chain. It is important. I know they've tr- been trying to address this, but it is a huge onion. It's a gigantic onion, um, especially when you start going down these lines. I, have you ever seen one of those supply chain line diagrams? I right? have not, Where no. It, it's this like amalgamation of just lines, right? Here's your first level, you know, first level suppliers, right? Here's your second level, right? Here's your third. And then your fourth level goes like this. And then when you check into that fourth level, you're like, okay, I've got this part being made where are the Netherlands? And then this part's being made in Taiwan. This part over here is in Singapore somewhere from there, right? Well, you get the same thing when we talk about a lot of the technologies we use, a lot of the code and stuff that we're using now, right? The, the use to sit down and start coding from scratch doesn't exist anymore, right? 
No, it does infect yeah. it. You know, using, using things like ChatGPT mm -hmm. just to get started. You know, yep. Give me some lines of code I can just start with. And and for for some things to I guess it'd be you know, machine learning, but you can write code to mm -hmm. to do some some very time consuming tasks that that you know, with ChatGPT right now. Absolutely, you can you can do that. And and the other part is is that if people get lazy in this area and you are able to actually work and train as far as different AI components and stuff too for this, you can also begin to introduce things that are a little bit more hindering, right? Things like, hey, maybe show this information here, but send this information there. However way you do that with encode, right? And it can be completely secure in how you did it, but the result and stuff or the end result is something that's not necessarily favorable to your organization or your customers or clients and stuff there. So there is a check and balance there, but it's going to take a tremendous workforce and a tremendous capability to go down that supply chain. And in particular, when we talk about in this more software age, discover as far as on what's bad, what's not so good. <laughs> and so I'm, so I'm glad you mentioned that it may it may look good in code, but it's not. Mm -hmm. Because I, I do believe that there is a, a train of thought out there that with, with things like ChatGPT and AI, mm -hmm. We, we can we can write code with it. Well, we don't need to know the code. Mm -hmm. We can just be a script kid, a script kitty, right? That, that that may not be the case because you you need to have somebody that can. And whether you could even use a tool to look at code, but you mm -hmm. really need to have somebody that understands. It's that it's that you know human understanding of the context yep. that that a machine just you know may not have. And it becomes that battle of cost and benefit, right? It costs a good amount of money to get a great software architect. Right, someone who has the use of experience as well as the expansiveness of experience to be able to say and discern, that's not good. That's not what you're intending to do. It'll pass every static code analysis tool that's out there. It'll probably pass most of your dynamic testing and stuff too that's there. But then you look and go, that particular function is as far as on the library that you're pulling from is not appropriate for this, yep. right? That hasn't been either verified, it hasn't been validated, it hasn't been tested. Okay, now we can move in that direction. So you have to have the background that really lies and be able to say, this is not good. And so when you begin to move down and start saying, you know what, this can all be automated. Oh, I can use, like you said, from script kitties or, you know, folks just kind of plugging stuff in and testing. Oh, that works. Okay, let's go to, let's go to, let's go to market with it. That is, that's one of the dangers that we have uh, in the industry. We tend to like to go to the cheap route, but that is an area that to me becomes a little bit more scary because of how easily things can slip through the cracks and then it just becomes part of your firmware it becomes part of your everyday code yeah you know that's there and it'll be on you know it, it, it can go completely unrecognized until the event <laughs> so. yeah, which is why i do think it's so important that we help train and educate people because you know your your one software developer could tell the the president of the company, maybe the company is 10 people or 20 people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm going to use open source because it's free, and I'm going to use these tools because they're free. And don't worry, it does all the same things that we need. But if that, if the decision maker, if the one that can say yes and no, doesn't know the right question to ask, then then sometimes you could you could have a uh, there could be a problem with that. And so I, I think it's so important to educate senior leaders, boards, CIOs, CISOs, because we we all can learn every day. You know, we, we need to be a learn it all, not a know it all. Yep but to educate them on the right questions to ask because rather than being told, and every vendor will tell you what their solution does, right? Mm -hmm. But you need to ask that one or, you know, that question that's one or two levels deep to, to really see if it solves your problem or if it's just a, if it's a PowerPoint because every PowerPoint is right. You know, mm -hmm. no PowerPoint is wrong. Yep. And so you, you need to know the questions to ask. We've been all over the map here, yeah, haven't man, we? Are we even following the script yet? There, <laughs> <laughs> I think I got off script and you just kept going. <laughs> hey, can I? Can I? Can I uh, I'm going to interrupt yeah, you, but ahead. can I go back? I mean, probably to the, to the very beginning. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was getting out of the, the military, um, I, I will admit, yeah, I had a job for 30 years, mm -hmm. and I was concerned about um, what I would do. I, I only knew, you know, one job, one employer, and for the most part, uh, the paycheck came in every month, and, or, and it wasn't a big deal, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I was worried about that for providing for my family. And so I did look at all the industries that were out there. And then I said, well, what was my passion? What did I really like to do? And I believe that cybersecurity is not a luxury item. It's, you know, it's not the, it's not the, the diamond that you, you know, does you no good, but mm -hmm. you like to show off that when, when the economy is in a downturn or if there's problems, you, you can do without. I, I don't think you can do without cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is like electricity and water today. You just, you need it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's one of the reasons I chose the cybersecurity industry was because I, I knew that 
that there was a lot left to do. It was never going to, to be static. It was always going to change. Mm-hmm. And that I felt, on my terms, but I felt it was fairly recession-proof. And so because I wanted to make sure that, that you know, I could continue providing for my family. And I know that a lot of veterans, when they're, they're looking at that transition out, they, they have the same concerns. I talked to a, a warrant officer, Chief Warrant Officer 3, the other day, and he said, you were a colonel. You didn't have anything to worry about. I said, I was nervous. I was scared. Yeah, I was as scared as every sergeant or, or staff sergeant or lieutenant getting out. And, and so that's one of the reasons why I chose cybersecurity was I felt that everyone, everyone needed it you know, right now. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I'm objective, but I think it's a great choice. Yep, yep. <laughs> that's there. Yeah, it's been very rewarding both as far as you know, the, the, the career path itself, but also what you get to work with and what you get to see every day. And it's never and the it's same. It's never dull. Yeah. It's never dull. <laughs> you know, Jonathan here, he, you know, he, he does our daily posts and everything too within LinkedIn and does that. And I, and I always say, man, I'm learning too from those posts yep. each and every day. It keeps me ingrained, but it just, again, shows you that there's an ever-changing thing. There's not one single day it's absolutely the same when it, when it comes to cyber. Yeah, you're, you're, you're exactly right. And I, I didn't want to do something where I just did the same thing every day. Yeah. 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 That was great. <laughs> I guess uh, what I would ask you is, you know, in being with CrossTrack, you're you're starting to make your way around to quite a few of the different, let's say, the different conferences and stuff now. Some of the different industry, you know, days and stuff too that's out there. What are some of the kind of the top three takeaways for 2023 that you saw within our industry right now that? you think people should be really aware of? Yeah, so I, I will tell you that the two things that we are hearing and that I'm hearing mm-hmm. are zero trust and AI. Everybody's yeah. talking about AI and everybody's talking about zero trust. And, and unfortunately, yeah, they are great buzzwords. Mm-hmm. And also every vendor has a zero trust solution and is AI enabled or can help you with AI. I, yeah. I, I will tell you though, if what, what we are talking about, what CrowdStrike is talking about, what I'm talking about, is the importance of securing your identity because of all the identity-based attacks. So you you used to have an antivirus that would protect you against the malware that right. would that would you know come to your computer. That's not what we're seeing right now. You know, 80% of the attacks are identity, and 71% of those are malware-free. And so so you're not fighting a malware problem. You're fighting an adversary. You're fighting a living, breathing human being. That is, that is going against you and they're using your identity, your valid credentials to, to get in. And so that's something that, that we talk about quite a bit is understanding not only your environment and the adversary like I've talked about, but also you know, understanding where your identity resides, controlling your identity, securing your identity, because that's what the adversary is using today is they're using your valid credentials to, to log in and, and then move around your environment. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, and the thing is, is that these days when we talk about, hey, I've got a super secret password, or, hey, I have a, you know, I have different services to which I'm, I'm using Federation, yep. right? Federation is great. Federation's bad. Yep. <laughs> right. Uh, when we look at the board there, the more convenient we make things, typically the more easy it is for an adversary or so to be able to step in between, still credentials, still information, and stuff about you because. They're kind of getting a two for one, right? Two for one for those types of things. So when you're out there and you're looking at uh, things like, hey, I use Google, right? So Google, all my logins, all that type of stuff is tied through Google, right? I use Facebook, right? Facebook, everything I do, I can log into all my stuff using Facebook, right? We start looking at that and then we say, okay, now let's look at that as far as on both a personal laptop, tablet or whichever, or even a company one. And now you have a bigger range. And then you have to ask yourself this question. What are the credentials you use for all the services you use across the world? Because I can tell you right now, even though I am in the industry itself, I can be very guilty as well of using the same credentials here, using the same credentials there, using the same single sign-on here as I am over there. And you have to be cognizant of those types of things. It sounds very, very small and basic, but it's so huge when you look at things like theft or when you look at things like breaches and stuff too that you have now where you have we talked about OMB earlier and stuff too but now things like TransUnion (laughs) that's there these are all things that really just kind of pile on the value of 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 information and data that can be used for nefarious reasons right and what do we tell people I would tell people you know use use a password manager solution that's Mm -hmm. what you need to use well, the users of OnePass right now are probably not very 
excited because all of their passwords, their information is now, excuse me, being decrypted and for sale yep. on the dark web. And so, you know, you, you say you, you use that super secret password. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. But if that super secret password is being passed in the clear by some by some applications, which we have seen recently in the past you know, six, eight months now has happened mm-hmm. where the adversary has gotten that password. And then once they have that credential they're you know, they, they've got it. Or yep. like my, my son, who will use the same password for multiple things. Uh-huh. And for example, let's just say maybe Netflix. It's only Netflix. It doesn't matter. Well, if it, but if they get into Netflix and they get one thing, then they're going to use that password that they know you probably use somewhere else yep. and they'll just spray it everywhere and, and see what they can get. So yep. it, it is, look, it's difficult. And I had bosses tell me, you know, make it easier on me and then I won't, you know, I'll stop writing it down. Mm-hmm. But one, the, the industry, you know, we cybersecurity professionals and, and organizations do need to make it as easy as possible yep. on, on the consumers but we also need to make it as, as, as secure as we possibly can. You know, multi-factor is not the be-all, end-all. I used to talk about multi-factor all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, but if, if you do it to your phone, that's easy to spoof as well because you could, you know, SIM jacking, you could steal yep. your, your SIM. Or you get tired of that, that, you know, did you log in? Did you log in? Yes, I logged in. And then you just <laughs> click it and that's all the adversary needs is one of those. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a, a passwords or passwordless or multi-factor. You know, it, it's good to have a, I say a variety, but a defense in depth, you know, have multiple things. Because if you just rely on that one password, sooner or later that password is going to be, it's going to be sold to somebody. Yep. Yep. Well, I'll never forget the day when my my son, my middle son, Lisa, uh, he goes, hey, you got your new iPhone, huh, dad? I was like, yeah. It's got that face ID on it, right? It's like, yeah. What if I told you I could break your face ID? And I was like, what? He grabs the phone and <laughs> points to my face. He goes, Oh, I can do anything I want now. <laughs> yeah. You know, my son yeah. got a new phone a couple of years ago, and this was a, a learning point for him. But got a new phone from, this from Verizon, and around Christmas time, so a lot of people get new phones around Christmas time. Mm-hmm. And he was having an issue with it. And I said, well, you know, take care of it. I think I said go into the store regardless, you know, you need to get, get it fixed. And so he Googled, you know, a, a, Apple, uh, Apple Care, Apple whatever, and the first site that came up, he just dialed that phone number. Mm-hmm. And I heard him on the phone, on the speakerphone with the, the tech support at Apple. Yeah. And they were asking him some questions and they, I, I, I heard them say, okay, we need, to, we need you to you know, give us this password and log in here. <laughs> and what they were doing was having him create, I, I don't think it was any desk, but it was a remote management you know, software. They were having him load remote management software on his device mm-hmm. so they could get into it. We've also seen a 300% increase in R- RMM breaches by or use, by the way. So the adversary is using that because people use it. It's, yep. it's a normal tool. So, so I got on the phone with them and started asking some questions. You know, what? why do you need this? What are you doing? And they hung up. And, and so what I had him do was change every password, which was a pain, mm-hmm. but he had to go through all of his accounts, change everything. And then, then I found out that adversaries do this. They'll stand up a website, put a phone number on there. Absolutely. And as soon as that website is created and used, it's gone. Yep. And they're on to the next one. And so he, he learned a lesson. So now, you know, my kids tell me before they click on something, they'll take a screenshot, send it to me, you know? <laughs> so it's like, I guess the training has worked in my family, but, mm-hmm. you know, I, I know I've clicked on, you know, like probably use well, I've, I've clicked on things too. Eventually it'll happen. It's, it's how you react and what you do, yep. you know, that, that will, that could save the day. Yep. And it is, it's, you, you have to take that extra time now to just stop for a minute. Because again, you, like you said, just Google it, right? And basically when it comes to Google and ads and stuff like that, it, you know, the adversaries use it. They use it on a daily basis, how they capture information, how they capture data. And it's very hard to track. It's very hard to stop. And it does, it does fall on us from a user standpoint to go, all right, stop for a minute. Really think about this. Am I calling Apple or am I calling somebody else that's in a different country that's, yeah. <laughs> that has a, a number here? Right, and it's very easy with these IP phones now to uh, generate numbers and stuff that look absolutely fine. Like just for here for Melbourne, right, yeah. three, two, one. Oh, that's got to be safe. No. <laughs> Can I give one more piece of advice absolutely. to your listeners? Go and ahead. this is something I talk about quite a bit. It's public, but Duda Build or Duda Company was breached mm-hmm. a year and a few months ago. They're the builder. They're, they're well, Vera Builders is a subsidiary of Duda that, that's here, and there are builders. And uh, so I was talking to one of the employees there and I asked her, you know, your credit's frozen, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and she said, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And so one thing I, I tell everybody is freeze your credit. Mm-hmm. And I've had, a fro- I've had my credit frozen for I don't know how many years. 
And I had a credit card that was attempted, but they attempted to open up my name and they had all of my information. And I got an email that said, hey, if you thought your credit out, we'll go ahead and take care of this for you. And so luckily I had my credit frozen. And so mm -hmm. I, I recommend everyone, you know, freeze your credit from all the bureaus. It's a pain sometimes when you need to buy a house or buy a car, if you have to thaw it out and all, mm -hmm. but that is a step that everybody can take. Yep. Yep. And the thing is, is that when you, when you do that, you are beginning to at least put some sort of protection in between you and some very large the, issues, things yeah. like your mortgage, things like your, you know, the equity in your home, your credit cards, as well as even subsidized lend lending and stuff too that's there, right? Or sort of unsecured lending Yeah, yeah. that's there because that's so easy to do nowadays and it's still up under your number there. So no, great, great piece of advice. All right. Well, guys, that's going to wrap us up for the day here, man. I definitely, definitely, definitely am just excited about the fact that you came out here, Jeff, and came on the show. We'd love to have you on again. I'd Come love to. A yeah. more areas here too. You know, it's uh, great to have you. That is all for this episode of The Lojo Show. We talked with Jeff Worthington about the journey that veterans go through when they leave military service, how we in the cybersecurity industry can help with that transition, and how you as a veteran can break into cyber. Before we go, I wanted to remind everyone that October is Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Follow on our LinkedIn to find resources for you or your end users' education and awareness. If you want to come on the show, you can send us a message on any social media platform or on our sponsor's website at www.blackinchtech.com. That's B-L-A-C-K-E-N-G-T-E-C-H.com. With that, we will say goodbye, have a great week, stay safe, and stay secure. <laughs>